Last week, we heard from the third chapter in Genesis. God spoke to Adam, and he said, Because you have listened to your wife and eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. You will work and work, you will struggle and toil, and when you are done, you will die. The son of David, King Solomon, wrote in Ecclesiastes, Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? The answer to his rhetorical question was, Nothing. Nothing ever changes. Everything you do will be forgotten. He writes, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and is striving after wind. There's a line from a band that I listened to, and it grasps the spirit of this. Six of my closest friends will dig up the ground. All my accomplishments gently lowered down. One day, you will die. God blames Adam, and whatever you think about that, whether you like it or not, it's the new normal. The world, the whole creation, is affected by death. Death is the governor, the ruler, the final word, and that word is a deafening silence, an eternal muting on every hope, plan, and aspiration. It crushes dreams with apathy, indifference, and cold nothingness. The poor man and the rich man will die penniless. The wise will gradually give way to senility and childishness before finally evaporating out of consciousness. The powerful, the kings, the governors, the presidents, the pharaohs of this world will rot and dry out into the earth. They ruled over others using the threat of violence and death, and in the end, they'll suffer the same fate the same judgment that they brought upon their enemies. This is part of what Paul's referring to in Romans 5.12, when he writes, Just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men, because all sinned. More to the point, in his first letter to Corinth, he wrote, In Adam, all die. No one gets out alive. As we tell each other on Ash Wednesday, remember that you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Death, and the fear of death, is at the root of almost every human institution. Death is the glaring abyss that humbles all of us. And so we develop things like cities, and we grow food, and we build houses to protect us from the world, to keep death just a little longer at bay. We develop medicine, and nutrition fads, and we even invented jogging just so that we can evade it a little bit longer. 
on a social level, this is why children are important. Because they give us some sense of legacy, of perpetuation, of carrying on into the future. They give us hope of going on, of outlasting death, even if only a part of us. And this is why we as a culture value strong and powerful people, because they give us the illusion that it's possible to fight death, to beat it, to overcome it, to resist it. And so things like the love of football, or the military, or guns, all of these are ways that a culture shows its utter obsession with resisting death. These are the ways that people express their fear of death and strive to fight against it. This is how we feel secure. But eventually, a nation will crumble and give way to a new nation. Eventually, your family name will come to an end and your descendants will forget about you. You will no longer live on in their memories. One day, all that you love will disappear. One day, you will die. The people that are most acutely aware of this are those in suffering. Because we, we distract ourselves. We fool ourselves about the vanity of existence with entertainment and pleasures and chocolates and beer and every pleasure under the sun. But suffering is, as C.S. Lewis once put it, God's megaphone to a deaf world. The sufferer is not distracted and they only see the truth. The truth that once the party is over, the absolute meaninglessness and absurdity of existence has to be faced. And for some people, the only answer they find, the only way out that they know is suicide. The Apostle Paul suffered greatly in his ministry to the church. And in that suffering, he occasionally vacillated between what would be better, living a life of persecution and torture so that he could bring the gospel of Jesus to the whole world, or to just die and be with God. Why would that matter? More importantly, What's so valuable about the gospel of Jesus? What could be so unique about this evangel, this gospel, this good news that would make it worth spreading to others? How could any news actually be good? Good's just a word we use to talk about something that distracts us from the tragic reality of death, right? For something to be truly good, for some news to be truly good, In fact, for even it to really be news, remember Ecclesiastes, King Solomon writes, there's nothing new under the sun. For something to really, really be good news, to be an actual gospel, it has to be something that can't be touched by sin and death. If Paul had a gospel to bring people, if he really, truly had good news for him, then the thing that he was trying to tell people must have been really good and really new. Because up until that point, nothing really actually fit that description. Something must have changed with sin and death. And that thing is called the gospel. We spell it out in the creed. The good news that Paul witnessed to, the really, truly new thing that has happened, is that the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, the one who breathed life into us out of the dust of the ground, has not left us to our own devices. Rather than leave us to our vanity, to our meaningless suffering existence, rather than give death the final word, God sent His only Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, the eternal Word of God, of one essence with the Father, and He lowered Himself. The word Paul uses to the Philippians is kenosis. He emptied Himself, and He became one of us. The eternal one, 
The one who holds the universe together was knit together in the womb of the Virgin Mary and taking on our flesh, the source of all life, the fountain of existence, humbled himself and entered our world of sin and death and for our sake dwelt among us. And while Jesus knew no sin himself, because in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and while he lived a righteous, holy life, full of compassion, he still suffered the meaningless void of death on our behalf. The one who hung the stars in the sky was himself hung on the cross. Again, he emptied himself. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. But a shrewd man would hear that and shrug. Another Messiah, chewed up and spit out by the unforgiving wheels of fate in the bleak mockery that we call human history. He may have taught us a thing or two about how to ease the pain of death, but at the end of it all, his fate was the same as all of us, death and insignificance. And if that were true, if that were the whole story, he'd be right. If that were true, then like I said, there is no good news. In fact, there's no news, just more of the same. One damn thing after another. But what happened? What changed all this? The Nicene Creed reads as follows. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is visible and invisible. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven was incarnate from the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. But it doesn't stop there. Because again, up to there, we really haven't gotten much past Genesis chapter 3. God makes man. Man needs to be saved from death. God becomes man and then God dies. But what's the next line of the creed? On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. On the third day, he rose again. This is the good news. This is the gospel. God became man, suffered a death he didn't deserve for a people who didn't deserve him. And then when it seemed yet again that death had had the last word, when the only sound besides the silent stillness of a corpse in a tomb was the tearful cry of a broken-hearted woman and disillusioned disciples? In the wake of that, the eternal word of God arises yet again to be the last word forever. Paul writes in his first letter to the Corinthians, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? In a creation drowning in its own self-destructive tendencies, Christ enters and takes that destruction in upon himself. And then... He beats it. He wins. In the face of the void, as the mouth of the abyss opens wide to swallow man once again, Christ punches through and comes out the other side victorious. When all seemed lost, after all hope had been laughed out of the room, just after that moment, God was found true. Something lasts. Something lasted. Something endured. 
At least one thing was eternal. At least one thing outlasts all the suffering and hopelessness. And that one thing was a Jewish man from Nazareth, Jesus Christ. The theologian Yaroslav Pelikan famously wrote, If Christ is risen, nothing else matters. And if Christ is not risen, nothing else matters. Pelican's point is that if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then Solomon is right, and everything is meaningless. But if he did, if he rose again in accordance with the Scriptures, then now we can wait out suffering and persecution and death because it will all have been worth it. The resurrection is the centerpiece of our faith. You take it away and you have a religion full of pretty words and pious pretenses. You have what Solomon called vanity, meaninglessness, jargon, As Paul contemplated the suffering he took on as an apostle, as he traveled the world sharing the gospel, in and out of prison, being shouted out of synagogues, being beaten and flogged, he tells the Corinthians that he wonders sometimes whether it's better to be alive or to be suffering, or to be alive and suffering or dead in the presence of God. And so I'm looking mostly at 2 Corinthians chapter 5 here. In verse 1 of chapter 5, he describes our current body as a tent. And here you have to picture a Jewish tabernacle, which was the tent where God's people were able to find the presence of God's Spirit. The tabernacle was for a pilgrim people, for a people sojourning and wandering to their promised land. And you don't need to read very much of the Torah to find that the people of Israel's favorite word was groan. Because they groaned and groaned and groaned. As each of us grow older and older, you can imagine... We've grown and grown more and more with every ache and pain. But here, Paul draws a clear line between Jewish and Christian thought and the conventional thought of many Greek philosophers at that time. The groaning doesn't mean that the body of suffering needs to be escaped. Leaving our physical bodies behind isn't the answer. Paul describes the bodiless soul as naked. The Christian hope is not that one day our soul gets to leave the wretched, aching, suffering body behind and we float gently up into heaven on a cloud. No. The Christian follows Christ because the same spirit that resurrected Christ from the dead is the same spirit alive and at work in us, dwelling in us. And so Paul writes in verse 5 that this Holy Spirit that has been given to us is a down payment of sorts. It's a seed planted deep within us that will one day manifest itself by making all that is true of Christ true of us. We won't be naked souls, he says. Rather, we will be more clothed than we already are. There's a common vision of what will be in the end, and it's usually something transparent and ghost-like. But Paul says we actually become thicker, more dense, covered up with more clothes, not less. But clothed in what? Paul says that what is mortal is swallowed up in life. The mortal, the part of us which is subject to death, the part where death can exert its hold on us, that part becomes more and more swallowed up in life. And we have to assume, since Paul's juxtaposing mortality and life, that this is a contrast of the temporal life and the eternal life, the life that Jesus said he came to bring us. What is eternal life? It's life that's not subject to the violence and death run rampant through the creation. Eternal life is uncreated life, 
Life from God himself. That is, eternal life is the life that's natural to God, extended to us by grace. It's an unmerited, unending life. A gift of God's own being to ourselves. And it will ultimately be ours. And if our life is eternal, then it can't be affected by death. It's a life immunized from the effects of death rather than being rendered meaningless by futility and frustration and failure. In short, because of the resurrection, our life can be meaningful. Not just in the sentimental sense where we feel valuable because we've contributed something, but through the resurrection, we're able to persevere through the fire, unconsumed like Moses' burning bush. Through the resurrection, the curse of Genesis 3, where all our works merely yield thorns and thistles and are eventually burned up into ash and dust, that curse is reversed. Through the resurrection, we can become like God in that our works can be judged by Him to be like His. He can call them very good. Because of the resurrection, it's possible to do good works. Not works that have any intrinsic value in themselves, but works whose goodness and value grow out of the grace of Christ's own resurrection. And we are to clothe ourselves in those works because insofar as those works that grow out of the resurrection itself, they are clothing what is mortal. Now this is a dicey passage, especially given the history of Protestants and Catholics, but it says what it says. Paul writes in verses 9 and 10, So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Sometimes Paul's bad at being a Protestant. But he wrote what he wrote. And that's what he said. Jesus was resurrected from the dead, so now clothe your body in good works. Get to work, because when Jesus comes back, he's going to judge you based on your life. A focal point in Jesus' teaching was that what looks like righteousness might not actually be righteousness. And the righteous thing to do might not outwardly fit our norms of what we think of when we visualize righteousness. That's why he says the righteous person is very likely praying in a closet, not on a street corner. The Son of Man eats with sinners and unclean folk, not necessarily with religious leaders. This is part of what it means to live by faith and not by sight. The good works with which we adorn our mortal lives must share in Christ's resurrection to actually be good. But the resurrection, by its very nature, is inherently not what anyone expected. It hides itself in the humility of death first. Then, in God's time, its true nature is revealed. Jesus explained this mystery many times in his own ministry, not least with his example of the grain of wheat that must die and be buried in the ground before it can grow and bear much fruit. The parables we heard today about the mustard seed and the scattered seed, they're all showing a similar principle that this is how God works. This is how he cheats death of its glory. And that's how he works in us. One of my favorite writers, his name's Peter Lightheart, he once gave a commencement speech to some college students and he told them, God's not done until he's killed you. It's not until God has taken all the things that we hold on to most tightly and crucified them that we're free to use them for his glory. When we let those things go and accept how unimportant and vain they are to God, how proudly we use them to fight off death, 
Only after that does he resurrect them and give them new life. A friend of mine added, once he's killed you, he's only just begun. Perhaps that's where you are right now. Perhaps things are falling apart all around you. Your world is ending. The cross of Christ brought about the end of the world, the beginning of a new order. Consider what God is doing in you right now as he strips you of everything you hold on to to feel secure. And consider that he's bringing you there not to strip you of meaning, but to enable you to produce good works so that what is mortal to you might be swallowed up by the eternal life of his Son. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.